You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the US. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you are listening to another episode of Fresh Hell, your favorite international podcast. Or maybe this isn't another episode for you, but your very first, in which case, welcome. We're very glad you found us. We are friends who have never met in real life, and every week we're telling you another story from the murder, mystery, and macabre department. And at the same time, we are getting to know about each other and discussing, you know, like cultural differences, because this truly is an international show. We aren't just sitting in the same room. We've never sat in the same room. No, that's right. You're in you're in Austria. I'm in Massachusetts. Johanna is a genius with the editing. She makes <laughs> us sound like we're in the same room. And she removed my wicked strong Boston accent. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> and if you're a regular listener, we are so appreciative of your ongoing support, you know, by listening and or sharing our content, by your reviews and ratings, or by your absolutely amazing messages. So thank you so much. And as always, we want to give a special shout out to our newest Patreon members. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Katharina, Catherine Mason, and Lauren J. Bradford. Thank you very much, ladies. We are very, very grateful. If you want to know how to join our Patreon and what to expect over there, just listen until the end of this episode and we'll tell you everything about it. Patreon is a little bit new to us and we're still working on some fun things for our members. But now it's time to dive into today's case and we want to tell you everything about it. But this case is, this is bad. And I know that we, we say that often, and many of our cases are really horrendous and heartbreaking. But I think the last time I gave a really sincere, this is bad warning was, it was like Josie Lang made a Marietta ball, right? This is, this is maybe worse than that. This is, this might be the worst one we've ever done. This one is, it's bad. It's, it's tough. Um, Yeah. This case is one that kept on my mind for years now. I'm trying to remember when and where I first heard about it. I was definitely still married to my first husband because I remember him snoring next to me while I was reading the trial transcripts. But yeah, it's been on my mind for a long time and mostly because of the nature of this murder and the fact that so many people played a part in it. And in Indiana, where this all took place, it is still considered one of the most horrendous crimes by many people. Oh yeah, absolutely. I honestly think just like the the Girl Scout murders are worse than this one, maybe. Maybe. But I think... There wasn't as much prolonged suffering with the Girl Scout murder. That's the thing. It, there's, there's, this is a torture case. Yeah, yeah. There's a, that's true. Yeah. 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 It's just bad. I don't even know what kind of explicit warning to give. Like, it's crime involving children. We're going to talk about torture, physical and emotional abuse, miscarriage, miscarriage. It's, it's today is it's real bad. We're today we're going to be talking about what happened to 16 year old Sylvia Likens and what she had to endure. And it's awful. And because we really want to do this young girl justice, this episode, it's going to be a two-parter. 
So this week will be the first part, and then next week we'll conclude her story. This week, we're, I don't think we really get too much into the most horrible aspects mm. of the case, but we're definitely going to be talking about some abuse. Our biggest source for these two episodes are the trial transcripts from Banishevsky versus the state of Indiana, as well as several modern articles and contemporary newspaper articles. And of course, as always, we're going to link to all of our sources on our Facebook page. So today we are traveling back to 1965. The Sound of Music was released that year, as was the Beatles movie and the album with the same name, Help. And I mentioned it last week when we were talking about Bermuda. And I was incorrect <laughs> because the Beatles didn't travel to Bermuda. They traveled to the Bahamas. And I don't know why, but I keep mixing up these two destinations. So I'm really sorry for that. Oh, that makes sense. I couldn't remember when the Beatles were in Bermuda, but yeah. no worries. I have similar issues with Budapest and Bucharest. I, I know where they are, but if I have to just mention it in passing, I'll always say the wrong one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, what else happened in 1965? So Mary Quant presented her exciting new design, the miniskirt. The Voting Rights Act became law that was guaranteeing African-Americans the right to vote. Dr. Martin Luther King's civil rights march uh, from Selma to Montgomery had taken place earlier that same year. Vietnam War was in full swing and so were the peace protests, most famous the teach-ins in Berkeley. Australia joined the Vietnam War the same year, by the way, in case you didn't know that. I guess most of you did. I didn't know that. Uh, Ronnie Biggs, the infamous train robber, manages to escape from prison and he flees to Brazil. The Higher Education Act of 1965 is signed into law, giving students low interest loans for their education. Is this still is this still a thing? Whatever happened to that? Yeah, I think most student loans are still lower rates than you'd find. It's just that if you've got like two to three hundred thousand dollars in student loans to pay off, which is now what most people have—not most, but many—it's a lot. It's a lot. It's yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Let's best not get into that, I guess. No, I agree. That's an economic policy podcast, and we are not a political <laughs> podcast. So the top three songs of 1965 were, number three, I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Uh, number two, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch by the Four Tops. I know the song is actually called can't help, can't help myself, myself. but uh -huh. I think most people yeah <laughs> but most people know it with sugar pie honey punch right that's right yeah and number one woolly bully by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs yes do you know what that song is about I don't but I remember it from Splash it was about their cat was it the cat was a woolly bully <laughs> I love it that's awesome <laughs> I never knew that I always think of it at, isn't that in the beginning of Splash when they're on the boat in the very first scene they're playing woolly bully at some point, they play it's it. It's possible. I, I haven't seen that in decades. Yeah, I just made Paul watch it for the first time. Okay, so I think you can all either remember that time now or picture it if you are too young to have been around back then. It definitely was a time of extensive societal change, and this was also the year that would, unfortunately, change everything for the Likens family. Yeah, so let's take a look at the Likens family. Lester C. Likens was born in 1926 in Lebanon, Indiana, and it looks as though he came from a hardworking family. Lester himself would only finish the eighth grade before he started working different jobs. He worked at a restaurant and in factories. He was a driver for a laundry place, and he ended up running a concession stand at carnivals. At one point, he met his future wife, Elizabeth Frances Grimes, who was called Betty. She was born in 1927 in Indianapolis. So they fall in love and get married, and their relationship is often a little rocky. They would sometimes separate and then reunite a little while later. 
1947, their first two children are born. That's right, two children, twins, Diane and Daniel. Two years later, January 1949, Sylvia Marie is born. And a year after that, on the 13th of February 1950, another set of twins, Jenny Fay and Benny Ray. Sadly, Jenny would later suffer from polio, which would cause a problem with her left leg. She had a limp and needed to wear a brace on that leg. And you might be thinking, wow, two sets of twins, what are the chances of that? Because we were also like that. And so we looked it up. According to an article in twinparents.com entitled, Twins Again? What are the chances? (laughs) This is great. So this is from that. This is just some interesting twin information. Quote, did you know that if you have had twins once, you are much more likely to have them again. If you have already had a set of natural fraternal twins or multiples, then your chances of having another set of fraternal twins or multiples has greatly increased. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. The chance of having fraternal natural twins is about 1 in 90. The chance of having fraternal twins with fertility drugs is about 1 in 35. Chance of having identical twins is about 1 in 250. Chance of having triplets is about 1 in 8,100. Second time around. Okay, so you've already won the twin parent lottery once. I'm still reading from an article, by the way, everyone. What are the odds (laughs) of you having a second set of twins? If your first set of twins were fraternal, then your chances of having another set of fraternal twins is multiplied by four. So that's one in 12. If your first set of twins were identical, then your chances of having another set of identical twins drops way down to one in 70,000 or so. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that, that one is interesting. If you're using fertility treatments, then the chances are the same as with your first set of twins, end quote. I thought also you had a higher chance of twins the older you were, but I could be mistaken. No, no, I think you're right, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, what the stats are where there was another child born in the middle of two sets of twins, but it's probably not that uncommon. I feel like I've seen it in the wild with some enough regularity. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm. At theme parks, for example, we, we've definitely, <laughs> every so often, Paul and I will look at a family and be like, are those all their kids or did their kids bring a friend? And then by the <laughs> end of it, we're like, no, they've got two sets of twins. Or once they had three, there was a family with three sets of twins. Oh, my God. And I stopped to talk to them. And I was like, do you, they're all twins. She was like, yep. <laughs> and her husband, I guess, was a twin. That was ages ago, just some rando people. But yeah, so now the Likens family consists of seven people, and even though money was often tight, for all we read, it looks as though Lester and Betty, you know, they did their best. They loved their children, and they took care of them as well as they could. Often, they had to leave the children with family so that they could go and work the carnival, but the kids were always well taken care of, and, you know, that's sometimes what parents have to do in order to provide for their family. It's certainly not uncommon even today. It's, you know, the whole it takes a village approach, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. But sometimes the marriage would be stormy, mostly because of money problems, and also probably because the family had to move a lot, which I think can be really difficult for a family with five children. They would not only move around in Indiana a lot, from Lebanon to Indianapolis, living in different places in Indianapolis, for example, but also out of state, they moved to California. But in the summer of 1965, Lester and Betty are once more separated. Betty, Sylvia, and Jenny are living in Indianapolis, Lester and 
and we think Benny are living in Lebanon. The two oldest, 19-year-old Diane and Danny, had already moved out. Danny was living alone, and Diane was married and already in the middle of her own divorce during the summer of 1965. Sylvia, who was called Cookie by her parents, which is sweet. She was a typical teenager. She loved roller skating and the Beatles. She sometimes babysat or ironed to earn a little bit of money. She had brown wavy hair that was down to her shoulders and a lovely smile, even though one of her front teeth had been missing for a while after an accident. She was described as very quiet and well-behaved. She never got into any trouble. She never used swear words. She liked to look neat and clean and took a lot of care in her clothing and appearance. She made friends easily, and she had a very close relationship with her younger sister Jenny. So it was 3rd of July 1965 when Betty Likens got arrested for shoplifting. Sylvia and Jenny, I think they were unsure of what to do and they wandered around their old neighborhoods and we guessed that they were looking for the places where they still had friends, you know, or looking for people they knew who could help them. And I don't really know why they didn't go to the maternal grandmother who was also living in Indianapolis. Mm. My guess is that maybe they didn't want her to know what had happened, you know, maybe they didn't want to embarrass their mother. Yeah. So they happened to walk around in the area of East New York Street where they had been living two or three years earlier. And that's where they met the Banishevsky children. Sylvia and Jenny didn't know them from their time living on East New York Street as the Banishevskys had not been living there back then. So now we also need to talk about the Banishevskys. Yeah. Gertrude von Fossen was born on 19th of September 1928 in Indianapolis as the third of a total of six children. Her parents were... You can guess it by the name, American Dutch. They were hardworking middle class people. Gertrude had an extremely close relationship with her father. I think we can consider her a daddy's girl. But at age 11, she had to witness her father die of a sudden heart attack. And I think that's horrible. I read that the relationship to her mother was never very close. I mean, I don't think they were like, how do you say that? They weren't estranged, but they were not as close. At age 16, Gertrude quit school, left home, and married 18-year-old John Stefan Beniszewski. Now, this relationship was long, unhappy, and sometimes rather violent. He would often beat his wife. The couple had four children. In 1948, Paula was born. I think Paula Marie was her full name. In 1950 came Stephanie. 1953, John Stephan Jr., you know, apparently named after his father. And in 1954, Marie. And in the same year Marie was born, Gertrude and John Stephan finally got a divorce and Gertrude remarried soon after. Her second husband was a man named Edward Guthrie, but this marriage lasted only three months as Edward was not happy about taking care of four kids all of a sudden who were not his to begin with. I don't know how to say this nicely, but um, this this concerns me on a deep level because... I think it's horrible. I find this attitude horrible. If you decide that you are seriously getting involved with a person who already has kids, please be mindful of the responsibility you're taking on. You can't just change your mind three months later. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't. Yeah, I agree. It's a really shitty thing to do, but also, how do you not know that your spouse-to-be has four children? Unless we think she hid it from him. Like, is it possible? I think it's possible, but I think it's unlikely. Yeah. As far as I heard, Gertrude was really protective and her kids were very important to her. I think she did a lot of things to really provide properly for her kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. I don't, I don't think she would have, 
It's possible. Yeah. We were not there. So they got divorced and Gertrude went back to John Stefan Beniszewski and they got married a second time. And they had two more children. That was in 1955, Shirley. And two years later, in 1957, James. In 1963, the couple got divorced a second time, this time for real. But already a few weeks later, Gertrude Beniszewski was in another relationship, this time with a 22-year-old man named Dennis Lee Wright. So he too was violent against Gertrude. I don't know if he was also violent against the children. I never read anything about that in the sources. I think it's possible, but I mean, that's just speculation and we don't want to, you know, say something that's just not true. Yeah. But we definitely know that Gertrude got pregnant twice. Her first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage and there are, again, just speculations that she lost the baby because of Dennis beating her. But just like in our episode from last week, right? Yeah, with Anna. You just don't know, but it's certainly possible. Yeah. So Gertrude got pregnant again, and this time she gave birth to Dennis Lee Jr. in 1964. But soon after Dennis' birth, uh, Dennis Sr. took off, leaving Gertrude with now a total of seven children. And without a regular income, she started to call herself Gertrude Wright, saying her husband is in the military and stationed overseas in Germany. She did sue Dennis Sr. for support, which he paid, but very rarely, definitely not regularly. Yeah. I guess she also received child support from John Beniszewski Sr., who worked as a police officer, but I don't know how regular that happened. I think it's okay at this point in the story to feel bad for Gertrude. It must have been a very, very hard situation. She was later described as, quote, haggard, underweight, asthmatic, chain smoker, suffering from depression due to stress of three failed marriages, a failed relationship, and a recent miscarriage, end quote. That's a lovely quote from the book, yeah. The House of Evil, The Indiana Torture Slaying by John Dean, by the way. Yeah, no, she had been through a lot. And we should also yeah. mention, having speculated that it's possible that she lost a baby due to abuse, miscarriage is also extremely common. Super common. And yeah. it's only just recently yeah. that women are finally feeling like they're able to talk about it in a more open way. It's very traumatic. Yeah. It's very traumatic. Uh, I know women suffer a lot um, and also feel like this failure, I guess. Yeah. Which you're not. Yeah. My mom would tell me all the time about feeling like, did she do something wrong? It's yeah. a really hard thing. And it's sometimes it's just an unfortunate part of, of life. And you didn't do anything wrong at all. And Nothing happened at all, but you still lost the baby, and that's it's it's tragic, but it's yeah, yeah. I just don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say like, well, maybe she was hit, and that's why, because obviously these things happen all the time. Yeah, it's just so sad. So, in order to get by, Gertrude would often take odd jobs like sewing, ironing, cleaning for other people, and so on. It must have been a hard life. I mean, being a single parent nowadays is incredibly hard. Now imagine being a single parent to seven children mm -mm. in 1965. Mm -mm. That, yeah. But trust me, you will lose all feelings of sympathy or most feelings of sympathy and compassion soon enough. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So Sylvia and Jenny, they met the Banaszewski children and they invited them back to their home on East New York Street. The house that was built in the 1920s in a residential area looked pretty big from the outside. It had roughly 2,000 square feet. The neighborhood, you know, it was a typical neighborhood at that time, suburban neighborhoods, so the houses are pretty close. When you look at the photos, it feels like you could reach out the window and touch the neighbor's wall. You know what? Everybody knows these kinds of neighborhoods, right? It's a suburban neighborhood where everybody's 
the houses are packed together pretty tightly. So just pass that cup of borrowed sugar right from one open window to another, you know. (laughs) There are a lot of houses and neighborhoods like this. And our point being primarily that it's very important that you understand that that this house and and what would happen in this house, it's not out in some isolated spot. We're not talking about a house, you know, out in some rural area. Hinterkäfig. Yeah, exactly. And so the neighborhood kids often hung out at the Banaszewski house, which we can understand. It's a house full of kids. And there's an age range going from 17 years down to one. So there's always somebody around your age to play with. And Gertrude was, um, let's just say she didn't really have the energy and time to be as attentive and strict with her children or the children who came over. It seems like that house was just a house maybe where the kids were not very closely supervised, like... The fun house, probably, when you were a kid. The fun house. That's a good word. Yeah. yeah. I think it was more of the fun house. Yeah. yeah. But not not in a safe way. No, no, no. I think it's like this house where you go when you when you want to smoke a cigarette, for example. or Yeah, because no one's going to care. Yeah. Which is definitely different from like the fun house where your friend's mom let you watch like R-rated movies. <laughs> different kind of yeah. fun. I think there was just no supervision at all, really. Two regular visitors to the Banaszewski house were 15-year-old Coy Hubbard, who was not only a neighborhood kid, but he was also Stephanie Banaszewski's boyfriend. And also there was 15-year-old Richard Dean Hobbs, who was called Ricky. He lived just around the corner from Gertrude's house and considered himself a family friend. It's so weird. He, He actually called himself a friend of Gertie's, like... As at 15 years old, you're friends with a 37-year-old woman, really? Yeah, but that's the age where you want to think that you might have friends that age, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not good. Yeah. Yeah. It was probably not out of the ordinary when the kids invited Sylvia and Jenny over. And at the time, Lester Likens was looking for his wife as he needed to talk to her. But when he drove to their apartment in Indianapolis, nobody was there. Neither Betty nor Sylvia or Jenny. So he and his oldest son, Danny, they started to look for them. And I guess the idea was to look around the places the girls might have friends or families they knew, like, for example, all the places they had lived before. And that is how Lester and Danny ended up at uh, East New York Street. And they were told that his girls were over at Gertrude's house. So he must have been like, oh, great. So he goes over there and he finds his daughters there who told him that Betty had been arrested. So he drives over to the jail only to learn that Betty had already been released again after spending only one night there. So she's not at home and she's not in jail. And I think in our opinion, the logical thing to do if you wanted to find her would be to go to Betty's mom's house, right? In the hopes of finding her there. But instead, Lester goes back to the Banaszewski house and he tells Gertrude that he has a job offer to work at the carnival again, but that his wife is probably not going to be happy to go on the road with him again as the girls need a more stable home. Sylvia, who had quit high school that year, actually really wanted to go back to high school so Gertrude Banaszewski makes him an offer and she says that she will take the girls for $20 a week and that she will take care of them like they were her own. Lester says that he needs to talk to his wife about it and then he and Danny spend the night at the Banaszewski house, which we think is a little weird because they could have gone back yeah, to the empty is. apartment. Like, okay. <laughs> but instead, Lester sleeps in an armchair and Danny sleeps on the couch at the Banaszewski's. This is all from the trial transcript, so that's Lester's own testimony that yeah. mentions that so... Yeah, I think that's reliable information. Oh, yeah. It's just strange. It's so strange. 
So, okay, they sleep there and then the next morning they wake up and now Lester finally drives over to his mother-in-law's and indeed there is Betty sitting on the porch looking rather distressed because she had been looking for the girls but she wasn't able to find them. So that's a relief that she now knows, okay, they are safe. Yes. And now Lester tells her about the job possibility and... She's like, I told you I'm not going to do that anymore because the girls need a stable home. And he says, well, he already found a place for the girls to stay. And Benny, who is Jenny's twin brother, he would just stay at Lester's mom's again in Lebanon. And Betty and Lester drive back to Gertrude because, of course, Betty wants to know the woman that is supposed to take care of her two girls. But I guess it doesn't take too long because they all come to an agreement. Gertrude will take care of Sylvia and Jenny and Lester and Betty will send her $10 per week for each girl. So that's $20 each week. And Sylvia will enroll at Arsenal Tech High School, where also Gertrude's oldest daughters, Paula and Stephanie, are students. So Lester and Betty go and they get the clothes and the belongings of the girls and off they go. And now you might be thinking, what kind of parents leave their children with a woman they know nothing about and who they just met like who are these people <laughs> and yes of course that is something that most parents would never do nowadays but i don't know i feel this was different times you trusted people more easily i think and it was actually not the first time that the Lycans kids were left in the care of others not including members of the family uh, it was around 1950 or 1951 so when the kids were really little Betty had spent some time at the hospital and Lester had to work, so the children were taken care of by a Mrs. Jensel who had lived in their neighborhood. And also Gertrude did have a lot of children of her own, so probably the Lycans were thinking, well, she knows how to take care of children and she's a trustworthy mother, right? Well, seems like. But I think they made one big mistake. Lester and Betty should have taken a look around the house, I think, because maybe that would have changed their mind. So the layout of the house was as follows. When you entered through the front door, you were immediately in the living room area. And from there, you came into the dining room and kitchen area. The kitchen also had the back entrance door and a door that led to the basement. Uh, in the kitchen, there was no stove, just one hot plate. And I imagine it was very difficult to make a meal for all these kids with just one hot plate. Oh, yeah. Also, they seemed to have lack of cutlery in the house. At times, all of them would just share the only spoon that they had. That fact seems really shocking to me. Yeah. Like nine people that share one spoon. It's, well, I think only having one spoon also isn't, it's, I think the fact that there was only one spoon, it doesn't just show the level of poverty that they were maybe experiencing, but I think it actually maybe also shows a sense of, Maybe early mental illness or the depth of the depression that Gertrude was in, because I can't imagine getting a couple more spoons would have been difficult. Yeah, also a lack of care somehow from all people in the house, because there must have been enough cutlery at one point, I assume. Yeah. And you just don't break so much. Cut it's cutlery. It's I have our cutlery for 15 years now. Yeah. Yep. Same. So that's the thing that's a bit, I don't know. I think it's like an early foreshadowing of how bad the mind of yeah. Gertrude already was. It's just a little detail, but it tells a lot. It tells a lot, yeah. Yeah. So then from the living room, there were stairs that led to the upper floor where three bedrooms could be found and one bathroom. So one room was for Stephanie, Marie and Shirley and the other bedroom was for the boys. So that was Jimmy and later on John Stephan Jr. I think uh, at first he was living with his father when the Lycans girls moved there, but he came 
couple of weeks later, so he shared the bedroom with Jimmy. And the third bedroom was for Gertrude, Paula, and I guess Dennis in a cot. Yeah. And then Sylvia and Jenny moved there and they slept on a mattress on the floor. So the house was already really small for all the people living there. And now two more. It was really cramped. And the house was also a little bit on the filthy side. It's a lot of people. If you want to have a, a clean house with eight, nine, ten people living there, you have to be really keeping up with it constantly, right? You would right? be cleaning nonstop. All you would be doing is, yeah. is cleaning. <laughs> so, yeah. But then again, there are kids that are already in an age where they could help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, she wasn't running a tight ship. I don't think she was capable of it, really, at that no, time. No, I don't think. I think, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Lester and Betty, they didn't take a look around. I think they only ever saw the living room and the kitchen, but that was to a later point. So at first, they only ever saw the living room area. But yeah, they thought everything is fine. The, the girls were happy, you know, they have other kids around. Lester and Betty were able to work the carnival, which took them not only to places in Indiana, but they also went to Michigan, to Wisconsin, to Florida. And it was also great for Gertrude because she had some extra income now, thanks to the girls. And it's not as if the Lycans just left the girls for a month without checking in on them. Like every time they were back in Indianapolis or the area of Indianapolis, which was every few weeks, they would check in with them. From July until beginning of October, that was roughly eight or ten times. And every time they saw the girls, everything seemed fine. They never showed any sign of distress or physical signs of abuse. You know, no bruises, nothing. Of course, yeah. Sylvia would sing the popular tunes of the time with Paula and Stephanie. She helped around the house. And both Lycan's girls would attend Sunday school with the Banishevsky children. But not everything was perfectly fine. So I think it started to happen like two or three weeks after the girls had moved there that, you know, Lester would send a check for the money that he paid Gertrude. And two or three weeks later, it was a little bit late and Gertrude was desperately waiting for the money and she would take her frustration and anger out on the girls. So... In the trial, Jenny talks about how they came home. I think they were at the park. They came home and Gertrude told them, now I took care of you bitches for two weeks for nothing. And she ordered them to go upstairs and bend over and she hit them with the police belt that I suppose was left from John Benishevsky Sr. So yeah. Now you might ask yourself, why would the girls not tell their parents about such abuse going on in the house? I think it's a good question, but I don't think there's an actual answer for that because, first of all, it was different times. You wouldn't question the actions of a, of a grown-up just like that, right? Oh, definitely not. Yeah. A spanking was more normal than nowadays. Oh, Thank yeah. Thank God it's not normal nowadays anymore. Yeah. Maybe they were scared, you know, that if they say something and the parents wouldn't believe them and then Gertrude would be more mad at them and everything would get worse. Yeah. Or maybe they didn't want to worry their parents, you know? What do you think? That would be, my inclination would be like, I don't want my parents to worry. Like, this is what we have to do right now. And I don't want to put any more worry on them. Yeah. I think also sometimes the devil you know is better than the one you don't, right? Because as bad as it was at this time, like they occasionally got, you know, beatings. But that wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have been seen necessarily as abuse at that time, which is... It is what it is, right? Different time. And so there is that element where, yeah, just the devil you know, because what if they say something and then they leave the Banishevsky house and then where where are they going? Are they, yeah. is she going to have to drop out of school again? Because now Sylvia is back in school and that's something she wants. So 
It's hard. Whatever the reason that Sylvia and Jenny, they just, they didn't tell their parents anything about it. And it was mid-August when things started to get a lot worse. So Gertrude at this point really started to focus her abuse mostly on Sylvia. And we think this was for quite a few reasons. She was bright and pretty, and she was a girl who was well-liked by everybody. There was one occasion that really started to horribly escalate the situation, and this was when this one time where Sylvia, Stephanie, and Paula were talking about boys, which is exactly what teenage girls do. Yeah. Right? And Sylvia stated that she had a boyfriend when she was living in California with her family. Gertrude, who was present, asked her if she had ever done anything with boys. And Sylvia, who didn't actually understand what was meant by that, answered yes, referring to the times that she had gone roller skating with her boyfriend or to the beach with her boyfriend or, you know, going for a walk with her boyfriend. Yes, of course she'd done things with her boyfriend. Well, a couple of days later, Gertrude pointed at Sylvia and told her that she was getting big around the waist. And Sylvia, who was very slim, took it as a joke and laughingly replied that maybe she should go on a diet. But of course, Gertrude meant that she suspected Sylvia was pregnant and that she had started showing. So then Gertrude Banaszewski went on a rant in front of Sylvia and her children, talking about the horrible sin of premarital sex and that whenever you did something with a boy, you would end up pregnant. At the end of the lecture, Gertrude kicked Sylvia in the genitals, which, can we just say, hurts. Like, I know (laughs) I've never actually been kicked in the genitals, but I've come off a um, boy's bike before and landed right on that bar. And a lot is made about men being kicked in the bits and how painful it is. It is not nice for ladies either. I mean, I think it's it's worse for men, but it's still painful. It's still painful. It's a lot of nerves. There's a lot of nerves there. Yeah. So... Paula, who is one of Gertrude's older daughters, she was actually the one who was really pregnant and starting to show. She joins in the attack and starts to kick and slap Sylvia. And we're going to talk more about Paula and her pregnancy next week. But for now, you should just know that nobody really knew for sure that she was definitely pregnant, but they, they did suspect it for various reasons. Now Gertrude began to switch up her abuse. She would not only beat Sylvia, but she would also withhold her food, which led to malnourishment of the young girl. Sylvia would often go hungry, so she would steal food from the trash can, which would often get her into trouble with Gertrude. One time, the Likens girls and the Banaszewski children attended a church picnic, and when they returned home, they told their mother that Sylvia and Jenny had eaten too much at the event. And this, of course, led to more beatings with the belt or the paddle. But not only did they withhold food, Sylvia was also not allowed to take proper care of herself or her clothing. She was not allowed to use shampoo. Gertrude never took Sylvia's clothes to the laundromat. Sylvia had to try and keep them clean by washing them by hand, but again, with no detergent. We read that the only clothes that were properly cleaned were her school clothes, of course, because they didn't want anybody to really realize what was going on at home. So Sylvia, who was always neat and tidy, now had no way of keeping up her own personal hygiene. And the Banaszewskis used this as an excuse as to why she was not allowed to sit at the dining room table with them. And they also gave her her own cup and bowl that she had to use because they refused to use the same dishes as Sylvia. This is so horrible. That's so... I know. 
And as we said, she didn't get a lot to eat anyway. So she tried to find food in the trash can. She collected bottles in the park to get money. And on several occasions, Jenny tried to give her sister some of her food. One time, Sylvia was caught eating some candy that she had either gotten as a present from somebody or she had bought. Of course, she was once more accused of stealing the candy, and you all know by now probably what that meant. So now it's August, and Sylvia and Jenny were at the park with the younger Banaszewski children, and they ran into her older sister, Diane. And what they didn't know was that Diane was actually living only a few blocks away from the Banaszewski house. I think Diane didn't have regular contact with the family. Lester stated later during the trial that they only knew that Diane was living in Indianapolis, but not her exact address. We don't really know what was going on there. And it's not really that important to the case and therefore none of our business, but it seems like they had a pretty tumultuous childhood, all of the Likens family, just with their traveling and stuff. But the girls, they run into their older sister, but because the other children are with them, Sylvia and Jenny don't tell Diane about the abuse. But Sylvia mentions that she's hungry, and so Diane hands her a sandwich. Of course, this means more punishment. And by the end of August, Sylvia had already had to endure several beatings per week. But the worst is yet to come. And we're going to be talking about that next week in the second and final part about Sylvia Likens. The really bad stuff is next week. Do we have something good to end Do this? We? Do we have something Sad good? episode. <laughs> How about you? Anything good? No. <laughs> I also <laughs> have things. I also have nothing good. I washed my hair yesterday. No, I'm sure we must have something good. I think I already said that Philip is coming home again on 7th of February. Yeah. The other thing that is something good, I still don't want to jinx it. I hope I can soon tell you all about it. It was a, a few days of almost spring weather here, which is good and also bad. Good because I just went for a walk with a light sweater on, which was nice. Uh, bad. I think the, the plants are getting really confused over here at oh, the moment. Yeah. I think we still have uh, a few, a couple of really cold weeks ahead of us in February. For sure. We always have that. I swear every winter there's, there's a part where we have a few warm days and all of a sudden I start to see buds and I'm like, oh no. Sometimes, sometimes all the forsythia and the daffodils are just covered in ice. <laughs> well, it's New England, but yeah. <laughs> What's I'm trying to think of something. <laughs> Surely there must be some something I've read, something I've... Should I read anything good? Did I watch anything good? Oh, I watched something good. Oh, good. Surviving Death on Netflix. Oh, you talked about this in the Facebook group. I talked about it in a Facebook group. It's a documentary series. I think it's six episodes about you know, everything that has to do with life after death. Like there are near-death people who talk about their near-death experience, about reincarnation, about mediums are talking signs from heaven and this kind of so if you're interested in these kind of things or if you have experienced loss lately like Annie and I did it's comforting yeah I'll have to take a look at it also the Night Stalker uh, documentary oh, on Netflix is I really good that. it's How really it? really good it was good okay it's really good I might try to watch a little of that today Opus watches TV the dog watches TV so anything too scary now I don't like to put on <laughs> I swear because then I feel guilty when he has this nightmare at night you know when they have their dreams and sometimes it doesn't sound good I'm not sure if he's gonna have nightmares from Richard Ramirez I, I'm okay I don't know he's he's pretty funny when he watches TV what did I watch? I feel like I finally watched a thing. 
Oh, I know what I watched. It was the 2020, I think, on the John Bonet case. Oh, mm-hmm. and it was. I guess there's a new podcast by one of the chief investigators at the time. His granddaughters, I guess, are doing a podcast. I don't know what the name of it is. I'm sorry. Oh, really? Yeah, and he really believed that it was someone outside the Ramsey house that was responsible. That case. Yeah, that case. Sometimes I wish we could. Like, you made the suggestion that on our Patreon we should talk, just casually yeah. chat about our theories about this kind of cases. But I think we promised all of you and we told all of you that we're not going to do true crime murder stuff. macabre things. Yeah. But yeah, it would be so interesting to talk about our theories of this kind of prolific cases. It's just so interesting because I think as we get more and more and more information and as as testing becomes so much more available, right? So you just look at the differences from some of the cases we've talked about to today where they're getting touch DNA. So they're rerunning evidence all the time, hoping... Yeah. I don't know. It's it's interesting. But yeah, I actually got to watch an episode of that. It's so funny how some weeks it's easy to think of something good yeah. <laughs> that happened to us or that we want to talk about. And some weeks are just like this week where we're like, oh my God, what happened? But I think that's life. I think that's that's to be expected. And yeah, it is what it is. Uh, yeah, I've had a sinus infection this week. So I'm on antibiotics, which make me feel crummy. And I'm just like, did anything good happen this week? <laughs> <laughs> Something good is our Patreon. Our Patreon members, at least, are something good for us. If you want to know how to join our Patreon, listen up. You can just go to patreon.com and search for us. So just type in Fresh Hell in the search bar and we pop right up. Or you go to our webpage, www.freshhellpodcast.com. And there you find all the links to Patreon, to our merch store, to our PO box, to our email. Everything you need to find us everywhere. Patreon, what are we doing on Patreon, Annie? Uh, We've done some unboxings. We've been talking about, well, we we, we started to talk about travel, but we had to stop and carry it. We're going to be recording the second part of that soon. We already talked about time travel as well. Yeah, we've talked about time travel and then real travel. Oh, you know what else? What was good this week? Bernie's fucking mittens. God, I could (laughs) never get sick of those memes, regardless of whatever you're political feelings are it's just those are that's hilarious it's like it's hilarious but i'm already over it i'm already over the it. first few days were good <laughs> it's, it's yes it was funny but don't beat a dead horse yeah yeah no i agree but <laughs> it was there were some really my favorite was the one where he's sitting on the jaws boat and it's just he's on the top of top like fishing platform on the boat from jaws and the sharks out of the water and he says i am once again asking for a bigger boat <laughs> my favorite is the one where he's lying on the door of with kate <laughs> i thought it would be the one with the dude <laughs> it was good uh, yeah uh let's see facebook you can find our facebook page by type in fresh hell podcast murder that last bit the murder bit that's important because there's another podcast called what fresh hell which is about motherhood and then there's another new podcast called what fresh hell is this i think maybe i'm not sure just type in fresh hell murder and you're gonna find it come say hi we're there uh people seem really surprised when they're like oh you're here yep Come over to Facebook. We are there. We are there. Join us. Yes. (laughs) If you enjoy our show, please leave a review. It really does 
help us. Tell your pets we said hi? Yes, all of them. Hug them. Kiss them. Always treat them kindly. I cannot stress this enough. Yep. We love them all. Yes, we do. And we love you. Thank you so much for listening. We, I'm amazed that this is our hundredth is coming up. Oh, that's another reminder. Yeah. Our hundredth is coming up. So. All right. Yeah. Yeah. We're once again asking for, we had a lot of requests for another listener, uh, listener story episode. We've done two of those in the past for our Halloween episodes. And this time we're not just asking for ghosty things, uh, anything in your life having to do with murder, mystery, or the macabre. Just any weird, interesting story you want to share with us. And you can email us at freshhellpodcast at gmail.com or again, go to our homepage, freshhellpodcast.com. And that will uh, also tell you how to get in touch with us. And just please make sure you tell us how you'd like to be, you know, do you want to be Annie in Boston, Massachusetts or Annie in the United States or... You know what I mean? Anonymous. How specific do you want to get it? Yeah, anonymous. Whatever you want. Please make sure to send it to us until the end of January. Please. Perfect. Awesome. All right. Until next week, if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.